The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about how to love people fully while acknowledging impermanence? For example, family, loved ones, friends, recognizing and accepting impermanence sometimes leads to a sense of detachment. Why bother? Um, yeah, yeah. I. It's interesting. I mean, I think maybe in some sense... Um, That can be true. It's like, you know, I can't think of an ins- I can't think of the example, but the sort of feeling of, oh, you know, this person's only in town for so long and so, you know, not to really get to know them or, or, so- or something like that. Um, but in my experience, it's, it's almost like the opposite is true, that the more the more deeply the experience of impermanence, the experience of emptiness is, is sort of absorbed, um, the more it's like the more special, the more precious, um, you know, because it's fleeting or that it's fleeting, um, makes it special. Um, there's, a, there's a saying in Japanese, um, which is Ichigo Ichie. Ichi is one. Go, time. A is meeting, meet. One time, one meeting. Um, Suzuki Roshi translated this as once in a lifetime, this one encounter. You know, so this sense of impermanence can have that, you know, things only happen once, actually. Nothing is ever repeated, even with, you know, the same person, the same, you know. We, we sort of know that intellectually, but, you know, or, or like this retreat, this collection, this exact collection of people may never happen again. Even if this exact collection of people happens again, it won't be the same, you know, it can't be the same. Um, and then the sort of the, you know, the, um, it also makes me think of, uh, the cherry blossoms in Japan, um, which are kind of beloved for their beauty, but also for their, um, there's sort of impermanence, you know, there's just like a week and the whole country is awash in cherry blossoms and then they're gone and then they fall. And it's like for that week, people are just in a reverie. And it's, I mean, it sounds like, you know, you, not everyone, but it seems like everyone and at the parks, are just full of people under the trees, eating and drinking. And then, 
you've got like three or four days and like a full bloom and then they start to fall and then actually that's my favorite time when like the a wind will come and just and then the whole sky is full of cherry blossoms and they're everywhere and they're kind of like oh my god and then and then that phase is a few days and then then they're everywhere they're covering the sidewalk they're covering the street they're covering the rivers and then then they're gone they're gone and so many zen uh, teachings and, and stories from Japan sort of um, draw on this as a um, example of the fleeting beauty of of life. So, and in the same way, you know, it's it's. I I thought I understood what attachment. I never understood what attachment was until I had children, you know, and and so that you know what is love, what is attachment? Um, this is a this is a great exploration. Um, I know someone said that atta- that love is I want you to be happy. Attachment is I want you to make me happy. <laughs> so that's pretty good actually. Um, And it's very interesting with a partner, with children, what, you know, what is, um, what what is that bond and where is, you know, what are the distinctions between love and love? attachment i um and sometimes we mistake one for the other of course you know and i know someone who um a long time ago she told me the story that she she went to japan i met her in a, we were living together in a zen monastery and when she was much younger she went to japan and she wanted to experience Zen, and she didn't know anything about it. And somehow she landed in the temple of one of the most famous masters in Japan, of, of Zen at that time in Japan. And then the thing to do there was to go in and ask the master a question. Um, so they called her in. It was her turn, and she said, "I don't have a question. I, you know, I'm just here to just to see what this is about and experience it and enjoy it." And he said, "Well, you have to have a question." And she said, well, okay, I'm, you know, I, I think I want to have children one day. Do you have any advice about raising children? It's kind of a funny question to ask a celibate monk, but <laughs> that was the question she asked. And then he, his answer was, build a wall of love around your children, around your child. And when... She can climb over the wall, let her go. I thought, ah. <laughs> so. I. <clears throat> 
<clears throat> I am prone to resentment of others almost instinctually and have trouble letting go of resentment once it has gripped me. Might you speak about how to relate more uh, adeptly to this feeling? Thank you. There is a story of um, a teacher who, uh, the abbot of a of a monastery, who uh, one of the junior monks comes to him, to the the sort of leader teacher figure, and says, "This other this other monk is uh, is driving me crazy." And I've like tried all my mindfulness karate on the situation, you know, like I've done, like tried to, to open to it, accept it. I've tried to do loving kindness and forgiveness and I've tried to do all of this. And it's just like still gripping me. What should I do? And the abbot said, uh, what I want you to do for the next hour is uh, practice uh, hatred meditation. And so what you'll do is you'll sit down and your job is to intently hate him for the entire hour. And if your mind wanders away, <laughs> if it goes to the breath, you pull it back to hatred and you keep intently hating. Yeah. So what do you think an experiment like that might show? Don't say anything. I tried it. Don't do it also. Don't do that meditation. <laughs> but I did. Uh, and, um, you know, there are a few kind of insights that emerge. Uh, one is that, is that uh, resentment and hatred, it, it really, it requires reiteration. You need to like keep dousing the hot ember with fuel, you know. And maybe the most poignant uh, kind of observation from that that sort of story practice suggestion is that uh, is that hatred is is a is a very deep burden on the heart. No, it's like ex actually exquisitely painful. And maybe sometimes it seems less painful than the alternative, which is to experience helplessness or vulnerability or fear or shame. Maybe the anger feels like a better option but it is, we actually have to establish and to know that, uh, that 
that hatred and resentment weighs very heavily on the heart. And part of what practice does is that it um, it makes our past feel more complete. You know? Like normally the way we experience our past is like there are all these traces, traces of experience, things that feel kind of unfinished, undigested, And part of what we're actually learning to do in mindfulness practice, it's like, in one sense, the the practice is all about the present moment, but what arises in the present? So much of the past, right? So much of our past arises. And we do what we can to bless those memories and the associated feeling with awareness and love. And it's almost like we're absorbing an impact with each time the memory, the resentment, the feelings re-arise. It's like, it almost feels like you're being, uh, like absorbing uh, an impact on the body And we learn to stay. And over time, it's like we start to drain the emotional charge from those memories. Of all the ways to suffer, historically, anger, the anger, aversion, judgment, cluster, has been my favorite. Um, and so, um, so I've had to practice has been very relevant for this, for me. And, uh, one of the like key pieces of learning has been that, um, whenever uh, there is some anger, hatred, resentment, um, contained in that is always at least some delusion. Like there's always something that's not seen. And we actually have to develop like a a sort of confidence because the nature of resentment and anger, it's so seductive and it, it's the hallmark of anger is its certainty, right? It's not like, oh, I might hate them, or, uh, yeah, right? Like they might, they might be an asshole, right? It's like the mind is seduced into, into certainty, and so it actually takes some training to like, to like really begin to trust that even though I cannot see it in this moment, even though I feel so right, I know I'm at least a little wrong, you know? 
and we get better at at um, at seeing deeply. You know, this is not about condoning harm, but we get better at seeing deeply. So in in episodes of anger and resentment, we get like very caught in these like big conceptual stories and we can't actually see the other person deeply. I think it's why like things online and comment threads and all of that can get so vile is because it's like we're robbed of the experience of seeing the face of the other. But the face starts to become just more and more evocative. Like the face, the eyes of the other, we actually start to like recognize uh, a certain kind of um, innocence in the other. That doesn't mean they're not responsible, but we actually start to like see something deep in their face, like what we might say, like their plea announced in their face. May I be happy. And because we know how deeply we long to be happy, and we've experienced that with a lot of clarity, we just start to see it more and more in others, even amidst their horrific confusion and harmful behavior and destructive patterns, we can still see that plea, may I be happy. And so we come into contact with uh, a part of us that uh, that really longs not to do harm. Maybe you sense it in the stillness after a sit, or as you walk or lay down or see your fellow yogis moving about. It's like there really is something in us that just longs not to harm. And that force becomes more and more of a kind of North Star within us. Could you please talk more about antidotes to the different kinds of desires?
I'm the desire type, he's the aversion type, so (laughs) 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 we have everything covered. Um, Um, So I would suggest two two approaches to um, desire in a broad sense. Um, all the things I said earlier about being mindful of it, um, get out of the sort of mental story and images and into the body and, and, and that kind of thing. But one approach is to look more closely at the object of desire. Um, and, you know, so the, the classical example of this is the Buddha's instruction to, uh, as an antidote for lust, for, for monks or nuns who, who want to diminish their lust, is to contemplate um, the a decaying, you know, the, the nature of the body that is that is not beautiful, asuba, not beautiful. Um, which doesn't mean that the body isn't beautiful, it can't be beautiful. But is there a perspective, is there a way of seeing that the body can also be seen as not beautiful, as asuba? Um, most people... Um, are attracted to bodies that have skin on them. <laughs> you know, uh, most people. <laughs> if there's no skin, you know, if if we're seeing what's underneath the skin, the organs, the the blood, the fluids, the bones. Um, that can often be a sort of like, oh, hey, maybe I'm not that, you know, interested. <laughs> um, I'll uh, <laughs> swipe left or whatever, swipe right. Or <laughs> you know. And and this is and this is not this is not saying the body is 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 bad or is. <laughs> You know, it's really learning how to employ a perspective that that can be helpful, that can be freeing. So um, this is not a perspective that, you know, you would want to do with a lover, with a partner, or something like that. Um, But if there, um, I I mean, early in my practice, um, you know, I started, I started, meditation when I was 18 and started doing this in this scene when I was 21. And, you know, as you could imagine, most of my sittings were just, you know, fantasy after fantasy of, you know, God knows what, of, of, um, of desire, of, of lust, of, and, so, so, 
So to focus on the object and to find a sort of a way in, um, it, it's very it's very helpful. It's very useful to just have that in your toolkit. Um, maybe that's that's enough. I'll say about that. You know, you can kind of um, play with it, and then the so so focusing on the object of desire, and then the other piece of it is focusing on the experience of desiring even though you know in in a certain way in a moment there's a pleasantness there's a pleasure to desire um, there's also a painfulness there's a painfulness in a kind of a of this always longing this you know I remember um, I think I've told the story a number of times in our Sunday night group, but it's like being single and going into like a sort of singles bar or whatever, like, you know, just, okay, a bar, <laughs> a bar. And, um, <laughs> and just this kind of like, I want something. I, you know, just this feeling of wanting and trying to find something, someone to sort of, receive my desire, you know, and that, that sort of like looking around, like, you know, who's there? Who's, you know, who can catch that, what I have to, you know, offer and, and just feeling that, that, you know, just feeling the unpleasantness of that, of the, um, the pain of that and the sort of unsettledness of that, that kind of leaning forward or, or, um, looking. Um, so, and then maybe the third thing, so focusing on the object, looking at the experience of desiring and, and noticing the unpleasantness or noticing um, what it feels like. And then, as Matthew was talking about with anger and hatred, it really is like a closed fist, like a clenched fist. And you can't keep a fist clenched over time without re, you know, the nature of it is to let go. And then you have to re, oh yeah, yeah, you did that to me about, you know, and then, okay, I hate you again. And then the nature of it is to kind of, even if you're a person who considers yourself someone who has a lot of desire, there are probably moments in the day when you are not caught up in desire. And just to to notice those and to let it register what it feels like to, um, you know, just to be content, just to be settled, just to be, just to notice the gaps um in 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 the in the grasping in the clinging it can be very um illuminating to you know um and there will be gaps and I guarantee you there are gaps um but we we tend not to notice the gaps we're always focused on the objects you know it's like you don't we're, we're focused on the things that are in the room. We're not so focused on just the empty space. And because why? Because there's, there's, there's nothing there. 
Um, but actually, that's the place that the mind can rest. You know, this, this magic show of consciousness is something that's being created. It's something that's being built. It's fabricated. Um, so, and, and there are moments when that relaxes. When ideation relaxes, grasping relaxes, and, um, and so this is interesting, just to, just to, you know, we're, the usual way of thinking is I need to focus on my desires because I can only be happy when I get what I want. So I have to know what I want and then just really, you know, go after it. And, um, but what if, what if our happiness or what if our peace is um, not actually dependent on getting what we want as much as um, relaxing the impulse that wants, relaxing that, um, that sort of, that conditioning. Um, and when desire is relaxed, when aversion and hate is relaxed, when the hindrances are actually not activated and not present, it's quite amazing. It's like a, the first time I experienced a feeling like that or a state like that, I thought, oh, now I get what the hindrances are about because I've just been swimming in hindrances for my whole life. You know, as long as I can remember sort of being an adult. And then to have, have the hindrances be stilled is an amazing feeling. And you feel like, oh, this is actually what the natural state of the mind is without this added activity, this added, Gill calls, sometimes calls the hindrances wind drag, you know. What happens when there's no wind drag? You're just, you're just flying, you know. There's nothing that's um, impeding you. And, and then, that was then when I realized, oh, that's why they're, you know, that's why everyone talks about the hindrances. Um, and so, as the mind settles and becomes more calm and more concentrated, you'll start to have more and more moments when the hindrances are absent. Or another way of putting it is, there isn't a self being created that the hindrances sort of glob onto, because the hindrances require a self. And if, you know, if there's just openness and just experience there's nothing there there's nothing to kind of um grab onto so um, and there were a couple of quick very quick questions just about the difference between the defilements and the hindrances so sometimes we talk about the defilements of the kalesa which are greed hatred and delusion and then he talks about the hindrances, which are sensual desire and hatred and aversion and restlessness. And, and the quick answer is that the hindrances are a subset of the defilements. You know, so sensual desire, 
which is a hindrance, comes from comes from this root, root. Um, I don't really like the word defilement so much, but this root defilement, which is which is called greed. So greed, hatred, and delusion are said to be what. Um, those are uh, what become uprooted when someone fully awakens, you know. And um, until then, we're 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 navigating them, and um, and so the hindrances are just a more specific sort of version of of, of those. Um, <clears throat> so just a couple couple things. Um, there are uh, more slots for uh, practice discussion. So if you didn't have one today, you can please sign up for for one of those meetings tomorrow, which uh, will be uh, at either nine thirty or eleven, and those are posted on the door by the dining room. And um, yeah, I, I, maybe I'll just say one where I've been wanting to say like this gesture of uh, hands hands together and bowing or something. Um, <clears throat> we didn't tell you, but that that means that you're pledging your undying loyalty to the two of us. <laughs> <laughs> and our perfection. Um, that's not what that means. Uh, I don't know what it means. It's like sometimes it, it kind of uh, you're welcome to to do it or not. And uh, if you do do it, it's like good to find some way that it's actually meaningful to you. Uh, like sometimes it can just be a, some gesture of kind of respect to all the others doing practice with you. And sometimes it can be good to like, just uh, almost like ring the bell of your own intention and, uh, and to sort of like, um, uh, yeah, just reaffirm something like why you're practicing, and uh, that perhaps that it might be of some benefit to you and to others. So uh, find find your your way with that. And uh, we have a, a walking period now, and um, we'll be back at uh, at nine for. Uh, First, sit, and maybe we'll close with a little, um, uh, some kind of heart practice uh, as we go to bed. So, uh, that's the other function of bowing. It's like, okay, bye now. <laughs> I, I, lo- I, I love you. <laughs> bye. <laughs>